Hello, welcome to Mikey Pod Podcast, episode 282 for November 25th, 2019. Today's guest is composer, perform- excuse me, today's guest is Grammy-nominated composer, performer, Natalie Joachim. Natalie just got nominated for the Best World Music Album um, yesterday, well, yesterday as I record this, last week as you're listening to it. Um, and Natalie was also kind enough to re-record this entire interview with me because in the, my 14 years of podcasting, I've made this mistake a second time, which isn't bad, honestly, um, where I completely lost the audio from our first interview. And she was so fantastic to talk to. I was crushed and devastated, and she kindly agreed to do it again. So thank you for that, Natalie. Um, I'll tell you more about Natalie in a bit. Uh, I can't wait for you to hear this interview. I am your host. Uh, Michael Heron. Um, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based here in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears, as I mentioned a moment ago, for 14 years. If you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons in the sidebar and footer at MikeyPod.com, or just search MikeyPod and your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at MichaelHeron.com, hit me up on social media everywhere as at MichaelHeron, or email MikeyPod at gmail.com. So hey, hi, um, I'll give you some little things of what it's going on in my world. Um, patrons uh, at patreon.com slash Michael Heron. I should say this podcast is powered by patrons. Um, there are a group of like 100 and I guess it's 115, 120 people on Patreon who uh, give me anywhere from $1 to $25 a month. Uh, you could do even more if you like to keep this and all the different creative things I do in my life rolling. I'm looking toward next year to like ramp things up even more with my pro- production and all the different things I do. So if you'd like to know more about that, Michael doc, uh, sorry, patreon.com slash Michael Heron. So uh, if you are a patron, you should by now have gotten your latest zine, uh, David. Uh, I make these zines uh, twice a year to quarterly, working on the timing on how that's going to work best. Uh, this one was called David, and it also, so this is the fourth in the series. Um, it tells a story of a lifelong friend of mine. Um, I don't want to get too into it, but um, each hand-bound zine uh, comes also with a download of some music that I created to go with the zine. So I, I do this work where I combine stories and text and music and video sometimes, and this has become a really beautiful way of doing it. I designed them with um, with my friend uh, Luke Curtis at bdstudios.com. Uh, you can find out more about that on my website. I, that All of that is to say, if you're a patron at $5 or more and you didn't get your zine, Shoot me an email. Let me know so I can send you another one. Um, I, I really love sending these out. It's really fun to send an actual object in the mail. All right, so those are out. December 11th, I'll be doing my regular show at Judson Memorial Church. My guests, oh man, Sing Out Louise, um, Chloe Kozer, Kirsten Marilyn, uh, Nolan Duran. Uh, I got a lot of people coming in for this one, and there's going to be... Here's how it goes. I do this show quarterly at Judson Memorial Church. Uh, man, this place, I don't even want to, where do I start? <laughs> it's a historic activist, uh, artist church. Yoko Ono performed there. Um, a lot of dance people whose names I should be rattling off the top of my head, but I'm not really in that world. I should memorize them. And plus, activist church from like the early day, like from when people didn't do that. <laughs> they like, they used to take people to Canada <laughs> to get abortions when abortion was illegal. They were the first church in New York City to have 
funerals for people who died of AIDS. Like there are so many things. They do so much immigration work now. Like it's an amazing, amazing place. I'm really honored to be able to be on the roster there and have like a my regular show. So I do music, stories, special guests. There's food. It's a $10 suggested donation. The whole idea of this and all the shows at Judson are um, not all the shows, but these Wednesday night shows are um, come, just come. If you can uh, drop $10 in uh, to at the door, that's great. It all goes right back to the church to help them do more arts programming and their activist work that they do. Um, if you can't, that's also cool. Um, there will be food available and it's free. So um, if you want to bring 100% vegan food, it's always got to be vegan on my night. Come on, bring your food. If you don't have food, if you don't have money, come see the show and eat some free food. Like, I'm super psyched about this, and I got to throw out a little shout out to my patrons again for this, because I'm able to do this show and, like, let all the money go to Judson because I have people on Patreon who are uh, funding it. So everything I do is pretty much funded by Patreon and uh, teaching. Anyway, so... Bop, bop, bop. I think that's everything. And I feel like I've gone on too long. I'd really love to get to this interview with Natalie Joachim. And let's do it. We're going to listen to a piece from her album, her Grammy-nominated album. Uh, this is called Alleluia.
That was Alleluia from Natalie Joachim, and she is joining me right now. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Natalie. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I should acknowledge this is our second recording. You've been kind enough to make space to do this again because I lost the audio. And I'm so, so grateful for you for taking the time. So thank you for that. No problem. So can we do a quick rundown about the album? The album is called Femme Daiti, which in Haitian Creole means women of Haiti. Uh, And it's really a celebration of female artists from Haiti that have... um, been really iconic throughout Haiti's musical history, but also a celebration of my own personal Haitian heritage um, with the inclusion of uh, the voice of my grandmother and also the girls from the small farming village that my family still lives in there. Um, And it's really about bringing together all of these female voices across generations to hear their stories about how they uh, persevered as female artists, um, but also how they celebrate Haitian culture and are really committed to uplifting the people of Haiti. Uh, That obviously resonated with me and um, is really personal and and close to my heart. So I hope that people, it it seems that people have been enjoying the record, which is wonderful. Uh, It's a mixture of both uh, arrangements of the music of these uh, female artists, but uh, also some original works of my own. And so uh, it's a real um, true blending of all of our voices together. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to to have it in this um, framework of blending all of those voices together along with your musical style, which blends together a lot of different voices, electronics, folk music, strings, and you play the flute and you sing on the album. As you explain it, it's really cool to see all of these different pieces that I guess aren't necessarily disparate, but they don't always get put together, especially with the folk music and electronics and strings. It feels classical and electronic and folksy, and um, it's just super nice. Was it tricky to sort of navigate being true to the history that you're trying to capture and the different types of styles? I don't think so. I think in many ways this is the first project of mine where I have uh, allowed the material to tell me what it needs to be. And I think for a very long time, I I didn't actually write any of the music. I was just um, doing a lot of research having a lot of conversations with these women, the ones who were still alive at the time and uh, with their family members going to their home cities, their home spaces, and uh, really immersing myself in the sound and and the culture um, and also in their stories. And so I think that it became really easy rather than trying to sort of you know, impose a form onto the material to just allow it to shape itself in, in many ways. And so in the end, it was mostly what came naturally to me from spending a lot of time with the material, spending a lot of time with the voices and with the music itself and the history. And so I'm glad that people are receiving it as a sort of uh, genuine and natural combination of of elements, because I think that um, that's really how I approached it. And I think that Prior to this, I had a way of working where I sort of went into um, projects with a 
pretty distinct idea of what I was hoping for the outcome to be. And um, this was really the opposite. I just sort of uh, let myself be a vessel to sh- that through which the material was shaped. But it was really about um, understanding what came to the forefront as I was having all of these conversations and going about the research process. That, like having, um, I guess the ability to have trust in your process like that. It sounds like that is new for you. It sounds like just with this project, you were able to do that in a different way. Um, what, what was the process like getting to a place where you're able to, to trust the material in yourself as an artist or, or was there a process for that? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, first and foremost that I should really thank, um, my commissioner who is Kate Nordstrom, um, who runs the liquid music series. Um, she really commissioned this work in a very, very early idea phase. It was just an, a notion at the time that, um, she contacted me about potentially bringing work to liquid music. Um, and I think that it, it was a really big gift to have a commissioner trust that you could, uh, create something in that way and to also be provided with the space and time to do that. The work was created, uh, essentially over a two year residency that I had through the liquid music series, um, and was in which they really, uh, enabled me to have access to funding for traveling to do all this research and, um, incubation space with the musicians that I was working with, uh, and an opportunity to allow the work to really develop over time. Um, and so that I think was a big part of it that I did actually have the time and space to, uh, trust in, in exploring a new process for creating, um, and so I'm really grateful for that. I think that commissioning is a really big risk. You just don't know what you're going to get. And I think that if you are a commissioner who is uh, adventurous enough and also committed enough to the work uh, and committed enough to the artist, that you'll allow them the space and time for the process that they need to create the most fruitful work. I don't think that you, you know, in my experience of commissioning, you don't always get that that time and that freedom. And that was a really big gift. Um, and so, you know, and I think the other side of this was that so much of this project was connected to this process of discovery for me. I have always been really connected to my Haitian heritage, but uh, in many ways I was learning a lot about myself personally through this process of understanding the history and the stories of these other female artists. I I should mention their names, which I don't think that I've said yet, but um, their names are Emerant de Pradine. She she sometimes went by her married name, which was Emerant Morris. Uh, Toto Bissent, who was um, a singer who died in the early 90s, but was really popular through the 70s. Uh, and then Carol Demesme, who's still alive and she's living in Miami. And she's, you know, really a celebrated voice specifically um, championing traditional Haitian voodoo music, Haitian roots music, um, and really connecting Haiti's connection back to Africa. And so, um, they, I was inspired by them and I, and, and in meeting them and meeting their family members, I was learning a lot about them, but I was also learning a lot about myself, how our stories interconnected. And I think that when you are, uh, 
if you allow yourself to really give give into a process of self discovery, it allows you to have time and space to to let the material speak to you in a different way. And so it may not have been that with a with another type of project that I would have felt that um, that liberty, but I felt really, uh, a lot of freedom to think about who I was and how all of our stories were, are really so deeply connected. And so I think that that definitely contributed to, um, my exploration of a new artistic process. I love hearing about your process partly because I'm also a composer and performer and, and the opportunity to have that, I guess I'm wondering like having the commissioner, have so much faith in you as an artist and in your work and just open the space for you to spend this two year period creating this thing that it sounds like they were pretty hands off on what the outcome was. Um, how did that affect your perception of yourself as an artist? Um, I think, I mean, I think what was really beautiful about it was that, you know, Kate was definitely, I mean, I don't know if hands off is what is the word that I would use, but I think that she was offering me space and, and time and freedom in a beautiful way. But I do think that the one thing that was really wonderful about it was um, knowing that I could also uh, lean on her for support as I was uh searching for direction in the work um, and that I really wasn't in it alone. And, you know, it's like from time to, especially on a larger scale project like this, from time to time, the commissioner calls you and you feel like you have this pressure on you to deliver something. And when <laughs> I her and just sort of say, well, since the last time we talked, you, you know, I've been to Haiti a couple of times. I've been to Miami. Here are the conversations that I've had. Um, here's how I'm thinking these stories will link up and come together. And to be able to just have someone who was like, great, well, that sounds really wonderful. And if there's anything that, you know, we can do to help make anything more happen that you need, um, just let us know. And that was always really encouraging to know that, like, sh she was really trusting me that I, that I could achieve that. And I think that um, especially for this, you know, for me, this project is, uh, definitely the project that I feel in my career is most representative wholly and completely of who I am, not just as an artist, but as a person. Um, and to have that kind of support and trust in leaning into that was really valuable to me. And I think it's definitely changed, um, it has changed my approach to my own artistry in every way, both as a performer, but also as a composer, in that I um, feel a, a great sense of, of liberty in being able to embrace who I am and, and what all of that means, <laughs> uh, to really feel uh, vulnerable enough to showcase that in my artistry. And I think that um, for me, I, I, I don't know. I don't know really what anybody else feels, but I know that for me, this project uh, feels like one of my greatest successes because of that. Sounds like you allowed the research and the experience of creating the piece to be part of the compositional pro process, if you will. You know, like it became a valid part of what the, the piece became. Like, I guess I'm just imagining myself feeling like, oh my God, I'm not doing any writing. I've just been talking to people. I have to, you know, like I'm feeling a pressure to put some notes down. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it sounds like maybe that either shifted for you or was it always that way with this project? No, it definitely shifted. And I think that, you know, that that was 
I, I would say that the writing didn't really start until probably the last six months or so of the process of, of what was, you know, years in the making. And that, that was definitely unnerving. It's terrifying a little bit because yeah. you're like, wonder what, what's going to happen <laughs> when I do this. But I think that it was important for me to, um, especially in handling narratives that are not my own, you know, to really, uh, discourage myself from inserting my own ego or, or insecurities into the process and just to really enjoy the materials as they were coming to me and to sort of meet the materials where they were at. And so I think specifically, you know, right now in my career, I would say I'm dealing a lot with narrative and I'm dealing a lot with um, storytelling through my work and dealing a lot with um, st stories that are not actually my own. And I think that when, when you get to a space of working, um, with material like that, I think it's very important to be a receptor, you know what I mean? To be receptive to, um, the material showing you what it is versus you sort of being like, Oh, this is what this story is about, or this is your story. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. like, not really my place to do that. And so it was important for me to really listen to the voices as they were coming. Um, and to really, be more uh, focused on having genuine exchanges with with these people um, and being grateful that they were uh, open enough to allow me to share pieces of their story through my own work. And that's a really big, um, it's a, it's a really big gift. It's a really big commitment for a stranger to make to you, you know, to yeah. not, not knowing what you might do um, with the material. And so I think I felt a really deep sense of responsibility um, in sort of removing my own, um, I guess the word I would use for it is really removing my own ego in it um, and allowing myself to sort of like meet, meet all of these other women and their voices were exactly where they were and to, and to value them for what they are, you know? Yeah. Does it feel like a, a spiritual process for you in some ways? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe so, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I think definitely in terms of this project, like the connection with my grandmother specifically felt, um, actually amazing. Like in, in a way it was like this project, she was, a, she was a voice and a person that was very important to me throughout her life. And, uh, the idea for this project came shortly after she passed away. Mm -hmm. And I think it was definitely a way to, um, honor her life in many ways and to honor the, the relationship and the connection that we did have, um, and what she really meant to me as a person. So I do think that to a certain extent like that, aspect of it did feel spiritual in a way. It was a way of, um, in many ways, it was a way of, I don't know if, uh, if I would use the word mourning, but it was a way for me to feel uh, more deeply connected to her after her passing and to process her passing in, in, in some ways. And so I think that it's fair to say that there was something somewhat spiritual about that for me. I think that people 
go through um, different stages of processing loss. And this was a really beautiful way for me to honor the connection that I had to her in my life to um, give new, give new sort of um, perspective to the musical impact she had on me throughout my life and to remain connected to her, to know that like, just because she's not physically here anymore, it didn't mean that I had to lose her so deeply in that, in that way. And and that was definitely, um, a spiritual experience. For mm. sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I think that's part of what is kind of connecting. I feel so connected to your, your work in this piece. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. I, I'm curious about, because I'm someone who likes combining electronics and acoustic instruments, and well, I mean, you do so much more than just that, but how, how did that particular connection start happening for you? Uh, that's been a, a natural part of my voice, I think, or maybe even like a signature part of my compositional voice. I definitely don't think of um, my use of electronics as like extra or experimental. I think that, I mean, the truth is that as a child, I was real. I was a kid who was playing flute and was really excited about that. But I was also really, really deeply excited by electronic music. And so, sort of this the the soundtrack of my childhood in many ways was this combination of like time spent sort of you know hanging out with my grandmother, making up songs, singing songs together, um, playing flute, taking my lessons at Juilliard when I when I was there for both the pre-college program and going to college there. And there used to be when there were record stores still <laughs> uh, large scale record stores, there used to be a Tower Records right across the street from Juilliard and it was when I was in pre-college there, uh, I started going to their pre-college programs when I was 10. And so my mom was like, okay, if you, you're allowed to leave the building, but you can only basically go to like Tower Records or Barnes and Noble, which was on the other <laughs> corner. Um, and there was like what, or the Starbucks or whatever. So I, uh, would spend a lot of time in that Tower Records, um, at the listening stations. And I really do credit Tower Records for a big part of my music education. And I, that was where I first discovered a lot of electronic music. Um, drum and bass was um, a huge and, you know, at that time in the nineties in New York, um, coming over from the UK. So I was listening to a lot of Apex Twin. I was listening to a lot of Ronnie Size. I was listening to a ton of Bjork and, of course, Radiohead and Tom York when they were sort of switching over to their uh, early years of being more of uh, an electroacoustic thing. So that was, you know, a lot of the music that I was immersed in. Underworld is another group that that was huge. It was like here I was sort of like playing all of this flute music and then like listening to this deep electronic and ambient and drum and bass music throughout that that huh. era in New York. Uh, and so when people are like, oh, how'd you start <laughs> start working with like flutes and electronics or acoustic instruments and electronics? I'm like, I think it's just what I have, what has always been in my ear. The one, you know, missing element was this like musical component of, um, you know, my mom sort of singing Haitian 
Haitian music and playing Haitian music on Sundays and me spending time doing tours with my grandmother and um, singing songs with her, that this is the first project that brings that element of the sort of soundtrack of my life um, into my own, into my work, my professional work. And so it just it actually just feels pretty natural. I don't think that there, I think if I, if you dig back and in, deep into my brain and figure out like what music is in there, this is what's there. It's what's always yeah. been, it's like where all of my loves lie. And so I, it feels very natural to me to combine all of those compo- components together. Uh, I love it. Let's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, some of these things I'm just so like, yay. I just, because I relate so well to some of the things you're saying about these pieces coming together and the way it's just so beautiful when we're able to get to this point as humans and artists and, you know, whatever we're doing in our lives that we can combine the, our experiences and the, our influences into something that just comes out so naturally. Like it sounds like this project ultimately did for you. It's really cool to hear about. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, in America specifically, we're really like genre focused and I think for a very long time, I was sort of hiding those other interests or parts of myself, especially going through like really traditional conservatory training. Um, and I, I, you know, the older I get, the more I realize that I'm just inspired by sounds, you know, like, and it doesn't really matter to me what genre they are. And so that's, that's been a funny thing about this record is people sort of trying to figure out what genre it is, or like insisting that I sort of put some label on it. And, uh, you know, some people are calling it folk, some people are calling it world music, some people are calling it contemporary classical. (laughs) I'm not calling it any of those things. I'm just sort of letting people call it whatever they like, because I think that um, it's just I'm more committed to celebrating um, sounds that are inspiring to me and that really resonate with me. And if they come together in this unique way, then that's great. I think, you know, one of the biggest compliments I've received about this record um, from a critic was that, like, you know, I was real. I created an album that doesn't sound like anything else. And I think that that's like one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me <laughs> um, is that, you know, that's actually pretty hard to do. And I feel like uh, mostly I was able to accomplish that because I was very I was not concerned at all with genre I was just concerned with you know the music and the sound that I had that was presented to me to work with and so there I was you know I'm sort of like self-reflecting while you're talking about these things and so many of these things that you have transitioned to I don't know if that's the right word but a lot of the things that I am sort of challenged with as a, a creator are those exact like ah I'm I I struggle with combining the different influences and just letting them be what they are. And I've been able to do it at times, but it's very difficult for me, especially in the beginning of writing something new that I'm like, I get in my head like, oh, I want to write something that's in this genre or inspired by this artist. But what Mm -hmm. comes out isn't that. And it feels like a failure in some ways. And it's easy to be like, ah, forget it. But it's really interesting and exciting and inspiring to hear about you just doing that. So thanks for being so forthcoming about that part of your experience. Yeah, of course. And I, I don't know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a big fan of quote unquote failure. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, um, I definitely feel like it, not just in music, but in life, some of the best things that have ever happened to me have been quote unquote failures. Uh-huh. Uh, might be perceived as failures, but there are certainly the moments that 
actually, I, I think I have come into a space in my life where I look at those as moments of discovery, which is like exciting. Mm. <laughs> it's exciting to fail, to quote unquote fail, because, you know, sometimes when you, you make the thing or you do the thing that is not exactly what you set out to do, it's actually sometimes a million times better <laughs> than what you might have set out to do. So, um, all right. At the very least, it's a learning opportunity for, you know, what works or uh, what doesn't, but uh, you're discovering. And that's like, that's a win in, in my book. Uh, yeah. And, and that's such an important thing to remember. Oh, yay. I, 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 get, <laughs> I get so cheesy sometimes in interviews. I'm like, yay. Like, then that's all I can think of. Um, we haven't talked really about the music we listen to. We listen to Alleluia at the top of the show. And um, we're going to close the show with uh, a different piece. Um, is there uh, some background about the Alleluia that you could give us? Yeah, um, I really like that one. It's actually it's actually sung in French and not not in Haitian Creole, but um, it's part of a, a suite, a three movement suite that I wrote. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I was kind of traveling around throughout Haiti and also in Miami, just uh, recording conversations, recording sounds, and um, uh, just trying to learn more about these women, Haitian music, the history of, of Haiti musically, uh, socially, politically, et cetera. And um, I am not a churchgoer myself, but uh, church is a, is a pretty big thing in Haiti, um, especially, obviously, since like colonialism, but, <laughs> you know, religion was a very big vehicle in, in that. And so um it was. It had been interesting to me that I had been discovering a lot about um, Haitian voodoo and its connection to the musical and storytelling history of Haiti. Um, and I think it's it's a religion that has been deeply stigmatized, but um, is not you know is not really any different than Native American religions or, or worship of you know natural gods and goddesses or even Greek gods and. In that they're, you know, also a reflection of, of a deep connection to nature, actually, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, I had been learning a lot about that through some of the more traditional Haitian roots music um, songs that I was discovering. And so there was uh, a Sunday where I happened to be in Dantin, which is our is our tiny little blip of a village uh, in the southern region of Haiti near um, a big, a larger city called Okai. And, um, my, I was sort of taking the day off. I, we'd been traveling a lot. I'd done a lot of recording and my dad was like, Oh, you know, your cousins are going to be singing in the church service today. Uh, you should go. And I was like, Oh sure. I'll go like just to support hearing them. You know, that, it, that would be great. And, uh, he was like, yeah, bring your recorder. It should be you know, like, you might be, it might be interesting if you recorded them singing. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's a church service. Like it's probably not going to be that exciting, but I don't know if I'm going to record it, but I guess you're right. Couldn't hurt to just bring my recorder. Uh, and so I did, and I'm really, really glad that I did. I think it was a huge turning point for the project actually, because, uh, you know, in my mind, I was, I was picturing a sort of traditional Catholic mass <laughs> of like, not that the music is bad in a Catholic mass, but I was sort of just like, I don't see what that has to do with where, what I'm doing here, you know, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, and so, um, and then I arrived and the service was, of course, you know, 
a quote unquote traditional Catholic mass. But of course, you know, I think Catholic mass, I, I immediately think organ or keyboard instrument of some sort and voices. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course in the middle of the countryside of Haiti, there's no organ or piano to be found or keyboard <laughs> of any kind. Um, and so it was actually, uh, a percussionist, a single percussionist, and just the voices. And what was really interesting was that they sang all of these sort of uh, traditional parts of the mass, the Gloria, the Curie, you know, all these things that we're used to hearing. But um, most of them were sung in in Creole. And then the drum patterns were actually all really uh, deeply related to um, the drum patterns in Haitian voodoo music, which each musically indicate quite a bit about the, about what what a song is going to be about, um, about like, you know, certain tempi, uh, relate to different kinds of stories or different styles of stories or, or, or are connected to specific gods in the voodoo tradition. And so it was very interesting because it was sort of like this, um, you know, Catholicism sort of superimposed on these people who are also deeply connected to this music that's been a part of their heritage for hundreds of years, again, like going all the way back to Africa, and is like, it was sort of the colliding of these two worlds. It's sort, you sort of like see colonialism in it, in its like true form where you're like, here are these people who have been themselves for hundreds of years, but then are like, okay, Catholicism, we can do that, I guess, but we'll have to do it in the way that we, that we know best. So it was sort of like, here you had these drums mixed with um, these very like traditional uh, Catholic songs in the Haitian tradition. And so it was, it was fascinating to me. Uh, and so all of the there there you hear the choir um, sampled here, which is also it was beautiful because um, you know most of the voices were of women and children, and it was very interesting the way the church was set up. Also, that you sort of had these young voices at the front of the church, and then as you got further back in the pews, you had all of these elder women of the community, my aunt included, you know, people, women who in their in their eighties, nineties, supporting all of these young voices. It was stunning. Uh, and so I was, I'm, I'm glad that I, I sort of like caught this cross section. I'm glad that my dad told, taught, told me to bring the recorder because I caught this cross section of religions, but also this like celebration of, of generations of women lifting each other's voices up. Mm. Um, and so it, it's beautiful to me that they're um, on the album. Obviously, my take on the Alleluia is really just uh, sampling the choir and also um, um, the text from a from a very traditional song, but uh, but I bring in this exceptionally quirky, almost video game like uh, electronic experience with the, both the strings and, and the electronics contributing to a, a really sort of I I wanted to capture uh, mostly sort of like exuberant childlike energy through it. So um, that's the Alleluia. It's the it's the middle movement of a three movement suite, which is maybe my my favorite. <laughs> They're the, these three the three together is maybe my favorite moment on the album. Um, and then uh, Papa Loco, which we're going to listen to, is actually a very old uh, um, traditional Haitian song that, again, has been around for centuries. Uh, Papa Loco in, in Haitian voodoo is um, the god of the wind. Uh, and it, the song talks about... Um, 
you know, us as human beings actually being um, butterflies that carry messages from Papaloko, who's the god of the wind, to Agwe, who's the god of the uh, god of the sea. Um, and I think it, in many ways it was a song um, that was inspirational for, especially like going all the way back to the days of slavery leading up to the Haitian revolution, which was a very significant moment, I think globally in terms of history and that it was, uh, the first successful slave uprising, um, that led to the first free black Republic, which was really, you know, incredible at that time. Um, but this idea that like we could, our words, uh, could serve as, um, a, a, as a vehicle and that we were like connected to nature in this way of, both like, um, you know, being able to take messages, uh, from the wind to the sea as a way to sort of travel, um, out of, out of the misery that we were in, but also to, as a sense of hope, you know, um, that you, that you could do that you could be connected to these higher beings in this way. Uh, and that was something that we could trust in. And so I really love, um, I really love the message of Papa Oko. It's a song that has been celebrated in Haiti for a very long time. I fell in love with um, Toto Bisen's rendition of it. She was a rather, she was both an actress and a singer, so she had a rather strong storytelling component um, to her performance style. And I tried to really um, recapture that uh, here. And and I just, I, I love the imagery of it, actually this sort of strings working in this improvisatory way to really emulate, um, the, the natural components of the message of the work. So, um, I hope you all enjoy listening to it. Ah, uh, Natalie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Before we listen to Papa Loco, can you give us, um, the best place to track down the album to find you? I think you're, you're performing the piece around the country right now i know it's coming to new york spectral quartet and i are going to be touring it around the country this season um and so i people can look check out my website which is nataliejoachan.com to look uh to stay up on dates for that and to see if it's coming to a city near you uh and you can also follow me most actively on uh instagram at njoachan so it's just my first initial and my last name on instagram and uh we just put out a gorgeous new video that i hope people will check out you can find that on my Instagram page, also on my YouTube channel. So, um, yeah, I hope people keep following it and keep in touch. It seems like uh, the project is growing legs <laughs> by the by the second. So, um, I'm excited to have many more people hear it live and to be able to share it with folks going forward. Uh, love it. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I one thing I didn't say that you, that you asked is that, of course, the album was recently released on New Amsterdam Records. Um, so you can look on their website to find more information about it. It's available on Bandcamp, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, wherever wherever you find music. So go check it out in the go check out the uh, album in those places if you can't catch a live show. Oh, uh, yeah. And I'll put links um, in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, so if you're listening and you're on the subway or not near a pen or someplace to write these things down, you can always just go to MikeyPod.com and I'll have links to everything I can fit. Uh, so you can find more about Natalie at all these places. Um, uh, again, my gratitude to you for, for being willing to do this interview a second time. I'm so happy <laughs> I get to share this with my listeners. Thank you for having me. 
Papa loco, où se Poussez aller, nous c'est papillon à porter, nouvelle baille Papa loco, où c'est Papillon a porté nouvelle Et tout ça qui dit bien, j'aime la Qui dit mal, j'aime la Papa loco, où c'est venu, où a poussé ma Nous, c'est papillon à porter, Papa loco, où c'est bon, où c'est ma 
4th of September of 1918. Music, theater, dance, art, we did it all. We all just, just want it. We live by it. I love all the Haitian artists, women. There is something that makes you part of me or me part of you. It's something. At the time I was really performing, there was no different. Uh, the men was the world. But in Haiti, they did start earlier in this country before the United States. I spent 65 years in the United States, and I bring my heart with me. And I said, time for me to go and help Haiti. All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. It feels funny to talk right after that, that track, but here I am. Um, yeah, so I've been trying to like throw some reflections about the interview and just in general, on the end of the podcast, because I'm in that strange balance of, um, I, I guess partly because if you don't want to hear me go on about stuff, you, you heard the interview, you heard the intro, you heard the uh, quote unquote important stuff. And I do want this podcast to be about the guests, you know, like part of my goal is to uh, to shine a light on, on artists that I think are important or creators or, you know, whoever I really find important um, and that I want to share with you. Uh, so the thing about this interview, and you could probably hear it when I was talking about it, is this realization um, I, that maybe an understanding that, oh, this isn't just my challenge and, and you know, my my journey with creating and, and some of the stuff we talked about, like, I'm always thinking about how to get out from under um, my own self-doubt and the sort of obstacles I create. Um, and, you know, one of the things like, Really, I guess hearing Natalie talk about the way she was able to um, create this this album and this piece, it's it, it was a you know you know about the beast now. It it's just really beautiful, and and that's a that's the sort of I don't know if it's overreaching to call it purity or like a, a pure way of creating of um, stepping aside, like sort of. In, in my case, I feel like it's this process of finding out how to like let like <laughs> i don't know how to say it push my ego to the side and say okay i'm going to just show up to this idea and let it present itself instead of trying to do the steer trying to steer it too much but i guess there's this this important piece of that that is we also have to steer it or it just goes off the rails in my case you know if i don't I guess huh. my big challenge uh, as a creative person, well, <laughs> is to 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 release fear or at least learn how to do it anyway. You know, like wow, I feel hmm. Uh, <laughs> my thing a lot like this past year has been a really it's been a challenge with um, momentum you know i i'm I, i've said it a lot i'm not as much on the podcast as i have in like sort of side channel or like patreon stuff um really struggled with being in a relationship for the first time in literally 20 years um and it, it's been really really difficult um because there was a reason i was avoiding this you know like there are a lot of 
issues that I just was avoiding dealing with and it was easier just to be alone. Um, and then I, you know, my priorities shifted and now I got to figure it out and I'm figuring it out. But man, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of reflection. And it's, it's a lot. It's been a lot this year. Um, but it's that, that is simmering down, you know, and I'm starting to be able to look and see, you know, so my, my challenge has been inaction. And part of the inaction is about feeling afraid of not being able to do the thing that I want most to do with my life. Yeah. So I think hearing Natalie's journey with what, you know, her journey somehow connected to me and made me realize like, oh, there are people who want to hear what I want to make. There are people who want to help me make it. And all I have to do is just show up and not be afraid of it. And maybe that's not the easiest thing. Maybe that's the hardest thing. Maybe that is harder than raising funds and all of that stuff. And those are just obstacles that I put up to say, so I could never even do this part. You know, and that keeps me from having to face the fear of doing the thing. Anyway, whoa, man. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Do you have thoughts about any of that that I just said? I'm going to let that just be its weird esotericness. And just, I want to start doing that at the end of this podcast, because some of this stuff starts brewing in me when I talk to people, especially someone like Natalie, who, uh, you know, uh, with her Grammy, Grammy nomination and her album, and she appears as a very successful person that's like, whoa, especially with the Grammy nomination, like, major upswing, right? And that's a world that seems unattainable to me, but I think it's an illusion that it does. And I think it's important for me to say that out loud these fears and these things where I don't believe in myself. Um, and I think maybe some of you have that in common with me. So if you do, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can comment on the blog post or on Facebook or send me an email, whatever you like. Um, you can even send me, like, make a little recording. And if you got a reflection about that, I would love to hear it. And if you want me to put it on the podcast, I'll do that too. What if this podcast became like a conversation too? Huh. We're open to so much stuff, right? I, I think one of the things I, I'm recognizing, this will be the last thing I say, <clears throat> is that I set up rules for myself that just don't have to be there. Like I had these rules about this podcast, which sort of stopped me from publishing it sometimes. When this is my podcast, <laughs> I can, it can be whatever I want. Like in my mind, I'm like, well, a podcast needs to be this. So I need to like have a format and only talk about certain things. Ah, who cares? Like, I think we're getting really restricted and it's things like Facebook are making it harder for us to reach other people. Um, you know, like I saw this great, we'll talk about it more next week. You know what? I'm going to leave a bookmark in that thought. We'll talk about it next week because my guest is going to be Ryan from Tofu Magazine. And we, he's got a lot to say about this. So see you next week. Bye.